0: I'm Laura Odotta with the Cato Institute and thanks for coming to our briefing on President Obama's 2013 budget. We have a good panel of speakers, so I'll read through their intros briefly and then hand things over to them. First up today is Tad DeHaven, who's a budget analyst on federal and state budget issues for Cato. Previously, he was the deputy director of the Indiana Office of Management and Budget and also spent some time on the Hill working for Senator Jeff Sessions and Tom Coburn. Following him will be Mike Tanner, who's a senior fellow at Cato. He has researched into a variety of domestic policy issues with a particular emphasis on healthcare reform, social welfare policy, and Social Security. Also under his direction, Cato launched the project on Social Security Choice. Third day will be Chris Edwards, who is the director of tax policy studies at Cato and the co-editor of DownsizingGovernment.org, a project that he and Tad work on. Prior to Cato, he was a senior economist with the Congressional Joint Economic Committee, a manager with PricewaterhouseCoopers, and an economist with the Tax Foundation. And with that, I will hand things over to Tad. Uh,
1: just say a few words about the Obama budget. Uh, obviously, at this point in the game, if you're a fan of limited government, you know you're not going to get much. And once again, you didn't. You basically had a, got a campaign document. Uh, you know, the president's proposing to spend $47 trillion over the next 10 years. $6 trillion of that is just going to be interest alone. The publicly held debt as a share of gross domestic product, 80 percent, and that's throughout the next 10 years. Uh, Spending as a percentage of GDP continues to be at artificially high levels in between 23, 24 percent. That's much higher than the previous 40-year average of about 18 percent. Now, of course, the President puts out a a list of proposed spending cuts. This is a uh, gimmick that President Bush came up with. Uh, at a time when people were complaining that the the W. Bush administration wasn't getting, you know, coming up with much in the way of spending cuts. Uh, Obama promises to cut $24 billion in what he calls savings. Obviously, though, if you're going to spend more money than you spent last year, you're really not saving anything. Uh, Most of the the cuts uh, are of the government efficiency variety. Uh, We're going to eliminate waste, fraud, and abuse, uh, get rid of duplication. There's really nothing that inhibits uh, or reduces the scope of government, which is a much more important issue. Uh, I'll say, unfortunately, the government efficiency stuff is often what Republicans justify spending cuts on, and and I'll get into that uh, in a little bit. You have discretionary caps as a result of the agreement to increase the debt ceiling. As a result, discretionary spending certainly uh, looks to be a little bit better than it was going to be. Unfortunately, as you all might know, discretionary spending is a relatively small and shrinking part of the uh, federal budget. Most of the money is in entitlement programs. The President proposes to do virtually nothing about entitlement spending. Uh, Mike Tanner is going to talk about that. You have the issue of sequestration coming up. Again, I'll see it when I believe it. Already the Republicans have spent a lot of time uh, complaining about the cuts to military spending. Uh, If I'm a betting man, I wouldn't be surprised if the Republicans trade higher discretionary spending uh, in exchange for higher military spending to uh, get around the sequestration, or they'll just go down the road of uh, pushing these cuts out, using the baseline, make the cuts happen in the future in exchange for spending now. This is the gimmick that they just pulled off, both the Republicans and Democrats, uh, to extend unemployment benefits um, and to continue the temp- temporary cut in Social Security taxes. Uh, will these caps hold? Probably not. Look, the, the bottom line is the federal government can spend money on pretty much anything it wants to. So even if they put these caps and uh, any other such budget reforms, suppose we have another Hurricane Katrina war with Iran, war with uh, somebody at at this point. Uh, Another economic downturn. Look, even with taxes, Republicans justify tax cuts on the Keynesian premise that it uh, uh, spurs consumption and and thus spurs economic growth. Uh, And that being said, even though most Republicans were opposed to the stimulus packages to get the the economy going, most Republicans helped themselves behind the scenes to the various programs that were spending stimulus money. So, we kind of know what we're getting or what we have with President Obama. One question is, what happens if Obama loses and a Republican wins? Probably safe to say Newt's uh, out and is probably down to Santorum, uh, Romney, and, and uh, perhaps Paul. Uh, towards the end of the year, I went around the various campaign websites and I looked at what are these guys and gals specifically pro- proposing to cut? Because that, to me, that's the big issue right now with the Republicans is, you know, not just cutting spending in general, but specifically, what are you going to cut? What are you going to do? You say you're for a balanced budget. You're all for voting for a balanced budget amendment, but what are you going to actually do, even if you had your balanced budget amendment, to get, say, from 24% spending of GDP down to 18%? That's when you hear crickets. Uh, If you look at the spending proposals, at least on the campaign websites, uh, basically, Ron Paul's the only one who's promising serious cuts. He actually put a budget together. Romney, not very specific. Uh, And in fact, you can see where there's going to be spending increases. Uh, Newt's interesting. You might have some reforms. But again, uh, and then Santorum, who has a a record of supporting things like uh, no child left behind, uh, Medicare prescription drug, You know, so, there was a report last week put out by another budget group that said if you looked at the four candidates, three of them are proposing more debt because they want to cut taxes but continue to spend. Uh, So even if you have a Republican in a White House, it seems to me that if you look at the, the, the folks who are the leading contenders, it might be George Bush all over again. So assuming most of you guys and gals here are congressional staffers, I think it's going to be really important. Uh, that your bosses be the ones to get specific. And and right now, again, you hear on Capitol Hill from uh, the Republicans in particular, because let's face it, the Democrats can never spend enough money, but what you hear from the Republican side is we need a balanced budget amendment. Uh, even worse, I'm hearing stuff in now about biennial budgeting, budgeting every two years because suddenly uh, the government's going to get religious about oversight, uh, which is an absolutely horrible idea. So our recommendation is, is get specific. And let me just take one issue and, and sort of explain what I mean here. Uh, corporate welfare, subsidies to businesses. I'm currently working on an update of, of Cato's numbers, a uh, paper that should be out ASAP. And basically we spend about hundred billion dollars subsidizing businesses. So if your boss is going to take on a program, have a laundry list, and you can't just do the waste, fraud, and abuse stuff or the duplication. You have to focus on what's the, you know, uh, what should the government be doing? What shouldn't the government be, uh, be doing? And so, for instance, business subsidies distort economic activity. Well, if you're not familiar with the Federal Housing Administration, get familiar with it because a bailout's coming. Because basically, the F- FHA has stepped in and is backing all these mortgages in order to keep the housing market afloat and they're running up massive losses that are soon going to be on the taxpayer hook. At the same time, you're continuing to shove people into houses who shouldn't be in houses. That causes problems and losses in the economy, harms other businesses and consumers. Small Business Administration, perfect example, only 1% of small businesses out there actually get SBA loans. So what that means is the other 99% of small businesses are basically disadvantaged by these government <coughs> programs that are helping subsidize their competitors. Uh, Privilege is special interests. Look, nobody knows this better than you guys. Uh, what, what do you see coming into your office all the time? Do you ever have a taxpayer come in and sit down and say, you know what, that economic development administration, what a waste of money, it's a relic from the 1960s, we need to get rid of this. No, you have lobbyists coming in all the time, you have folks from back home, in Washington is an echo chamber. It's a constant bubble where you're constantly said spend, spend, spend. And <laughs> again, if you make the argument, if, if your boss is willing to, you know, step out and say no, there's the broader public to keep in mind. No, we understand this is important to you, but it does damage the economy. It disadvantages you. That's the arguments you have to start uh, making. Two more quick points. Uh, government and business collusion creates an unhealthy relationship. Look at TARP. That's a very unpopular, and it really galvanized public perception that government and business is, is way too close. But a lot of the people that made the decisions to hand out our money to these uh, firms on Wall Street and these other financial firms, they were there. And then they come up to the Hill, and then when all said and done, they'll be back. And so, again, you have this unhealthy relationship. Last and most important, it violates the Constitution. I'll give you one program for an example community development block grants. I'm sure you guys are all getting stuff from uh, local officials back home saying about it's so important that we have these federal subsidies. Uh, look, things like wine bars, things like shopping centers, that's what this federal money is going towards. And if you tell me that, that is somehow is the general welfare clause uh, or is uh, interstate commerce, a, a, a Jack Link's beef jerky company in Wisconsin getting subsidies from the Community Development Fund or a wine bar in Connecticut or a brewery in Michigan, uh, then, you know, it's not there. So focus on the specifics, put together the arguments, do the legwork. We're helping you do the legwork with the information and research. If you go to downsizinggovernment.org, we're going department by department, program by program, and we're putting together the numbers and the arguments and the research that will help you make the case to get rid of this stuff. But again, going forward, it's time to stop with the generalities, get specific, or else we're going over a cliff. Thank you. A happy note to pick up. <laughs> Yeah, pick up on that happy note. Uh, <clears throat> well,
2: as bad as the... Uh, the president's budget looks, and it it looks pretty bad. It adds about $7 trillion to the national debt over the next uh, 10 years. It never achieves balance. Uh, As bad as it looks, it is in many ways helped out and looks better because of the budget rules and the fact that it works within a 10-year budget window. Uh, if you actually look at the deficit projections and the trajectory of the deficit projections under the president's budget, uh, they come down for a little while. He gets down to the mid $500 billion range for budget deficits, which we all cheer because uh, it's hardly $500 billion. is hardly worth noticing these days. Uh, by 2018. And then it starts back up again. And by the time you hit the 2022 end of the 10-year budget window, he's back up in the mid $700 billion range. And that line is headed up. But of course, we just stop counting at 2022. And we pretend uh, nothing ever happens after that. Well, what is the reason for that? It's that because beginning around 2020 is when the real entitlement problem in this country starts to kick in. That's when Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security really begin to take off. So he's only got a couple of years of that, and then whatever happens out beyond that, well, he doesn't have to pay any attention to it. It's like we're racing towards a cliff, and just before we hit that cliff, the film breaks and stops. And uh, then we just say, well, it didn't go off the cliff, so we don't have to worry about it. Uh, unfortunately, the car is still still headed in that direction, and that's where we're headed uh, with the entitlements. Because the president's budget does not do anything about fundamentally altering the trajectory of entitlement programs. Now, in Medicare, the President does propose about $364 billion in Medicare cuts over the next 10 years. Now that sounds like a lot in cuts, until you realize that this year Medicare will spend $480 billion, so so the cuts uh, proportionally are not all that large. He does propose, I, I will say, the president does propose some good ideas for Medicare reform in there. Some of the cuts he's making are, are decent ideas. Uh, he would change, for example, the way Medicare handles bad debt. People who don't pay their, uh, their deductibles, uh, for example, or their co-payments or, or otherwise uh, are supposed to pay part of their Medicare payments and don't, the government reimburses hospitals for the for the people's bad debt. Uh, and the, right now it reimburses at a much higher rate, about three times the rate of private insurance for that same debt, and the President proposes bringing it down and matching private insurance levels uh, for that, which I think is a good idea. He would charge more for affluent seniors participating in the program, particularly on the Medicare prescription drug benefit, uh, something that, that we've advocated for a while. So I, I do think there's some, some decent ideas in there. There are also some ideas that are not likely to pan out. Uh, He, once again, wants to squeeze reimbursement rates for physicians, which is something they've been trying to do for years, and he's got, of course, a number of we're going to be more efficient, we're going to weed out waste, fraud, and abuse ideas, which we've been trying to do since at least the Carter uh, years, when I think he was the first president to say we're going to balance the budget on waste, fraud, and abuse. Uh, So we have to worry about that. And then, of course, there's a problem because the number of his proposed savings are going to be offset by increases in Medicare spending from savings that don't pan out under Obamacare. We've already had a CBO-issued report in December suggesting that two of the president's proposals for how they were going to make Medicare more efficient and save money there uh, do not actually save any money. So uh, the the $500 billion in predicted cuts under under Obamacare for Medicare are not likely to actually occur, uh, and therefore they're going to offset, more than offset, any of the savings the president has proposed here. Uh, The net result is that by the end of the, uh, 20, you know, by the time we get to 2022, at the end of the 10-year budget cycle, uh, Medicare is still going to be on a projection towards somewhere between, depending on which accounting measure you want to use, its total unfunded liabilities range somewhere between $50 and $90 trillion. Now, Social Security, on the other hand, uh, is in slightly better shape. Uh, Its unfunded liabilities are only somewhere around $21 to $22 trillion. Uh, On the other hand, the President proposes absolutely no reforms of Social Security uh, in his budget. So he just continues us racing down that cliff without even tapping at the brakes. Uh, Overall, if you add those together, by the way, you see we end up uh, well over $100 trillion uh, in the red. And, in fact, if you throw in the budget deficit, which the President is proposing to be about $22 trillion, uh, $23 trillion by the end of by 2022, the, the actual on the books debt, we're going to be well up in the $130 trillion uh, of budget, uh, budget or debt range, uh, which is about 911% of GDP, just uh, just to put it in uh, perspective uh, there. But of course, one of the things that we make, <coughs> points we make at Cato is the fact that the debt and the deficit are not actually the problem facing this country, they're just a symptom of the disease which is the question of the size of government. And if you look at what CBO has projected, they project that by 2050 in this country, we will have a federal government that consumes 42.2% of GDP. If you throw in state and local governments, will be over 60% of GDP, which is a larger government than any country in Europe has today. So we will have a bigger welfare state than say France or Sweden does uh, by 2050. Uh, The president's budget does not do anything to change the trajectory uh, of that increase. Uh, He might bring it down by a percent, maybe two, because of the cuts in uh, discretionary spending and some of the interest savings, but because he does not fundamentally change the trajectory of the three entitlement programs, Medicaid, Medicare, and Social Security, uh, which are driving that cost and therefore does not change ultimately the amount of interest we have to pay, the big four drivers, Uh, in in spending, we are going to end up with a federal government that's still going to be over 40% of GDP uh, by the mid-century. So fundamentally, the question is, are you going to simply take your 10-year savings, play around with uh, whatever cuts, I think we need to make the cuts, but whatever cuts you're making in domestic discretionary spending, uh, hopefully you start trimming defense as well, but just get to 2022 and say, whew, we've solved the problem or are you going to deal with those fundamental entitlement programs that take you off the cliff out beyond that 10-year budget window? The president has essentially abdicated any leadership on the entitlement issue. Uh, He's tried to pretend that 2023 and beyond don't exist. Unfortunately, they do, and if we don't fix them, we're going off that cliff. Thank you.
3: Thank you, Mike, and thank you, uh, Laura. I'm going to switch gears and talk about taxes. Uh, There is a lot to talk about this year because President Obama has a whole slew of tax proposals in his new budget. Some of them we've seen before. Some of them are new. And he also released a uh, corporate tax reform paper last week which has some uh, interesting stuff in it, and I'll talk about that as well. Some of uh, the administration's... rhetoric on uh, taxes sounds pretty good. Uh, the new budget talks about tax reform over and over. It talks about everyone playing by the same rules uh, in the tax code. It talks about ab- abolishing loopholes. And uh, in the budget, there's a big headline that says, simplify the tax code and lower tax rates, quote unquote. But unfortunately, the administration does the exact opposite. The administration's tax plan Uh, adds loopholes to the tax code, it adds complexity, and it also raises individual income tax rates. His proposals, despite him using the phrase tax reform over and over, his proposals really go in the opposite direction of the 1986 Bipartisan Tax Reform Act. So let me talk a little bit about uh, his his individual income tax changes first, and then I'll go on to the corporate stuff. Uh, as I'm sure all of you know, President Obama would raise the top two individual income tax rates. The top rate would go back up uh to forty percent. in fact, it would go over forty percent because he would uh, he has provisions to phase out exemptions and uh, deductions for high income taxpayers, which essentially raises marginal tax rates. Uh, he also adds, uh, uh, he's also already added a 3.8% new tax on investment income for high earners under his health care plan. So the effect of this will be to reduce productive activities by high earners and to increase unproductive activities like tax avoidance and evasion. High earners have larger behavioral responses uh, to tax changes than, uh, than other uh, Americans, and so there will be a large response to these tax changes in my view. Uh, The administration's rhetoric, and President Obama's uh, rhetoric uh, in particular, uh, often uh, talks as if rich people are sort of these uh, useless uh, Wall Street speculator types who don't really add anything to the economy. The reality is is that most of the people who populate the very top end of the income uh, spectrum are highly productive uh, people who are extremely important for the economy. Uh, I recently dug into the data on doctors and surgeons in the United States. There are seven hundred thousand doctors and surgeons in the United States. Their average salaries by profession range from about two hundred and ten thousand a year to over five hundred thousand dollars a year. Doctors and surgeons uh, work very long hours, have a very tough uh, jobs in general uh, their their incomes put the, put a bull's eye on their back. Uh, Uh, by uh, President Obama's tax increases. They are exactly the type of people who are going to get hit by President Obama's tax rate increases, and so their response is they will reduce their labor supply over time, they will reduce the number of hours they work, they will retire earlier, and they will make other changes um, uh, that will be bad for the economy and bad for all of us. So what about Warren Buffett, the President talks about Warren Buffett a lot, Warren Buffett has a tax rate, an average tax rate of about 17% according to Mr. Buffett and uh, Buffett and Obama go around saying that you know this tax rate is much lower than uh, Mr. Buffett's secretary supposedly. But Mr. Buffett is an anomaly. If you look at uh, people, uh, if you look at IRS data, people who make over a million dollars a year Their their average tax rate's about 25%. You have to go to the extreme high end of the tax spectrum, above $10 million, for for average tax rates to start falling, because uh, people at the extreme high end mainly get a lot of capital gains uh, uh, tax, uh, a lot of capital gains income. Capital gains faces a 15% rate, and that reduces the the average rate for people at the extreme top end, uh, such as Mr. Buffett. Uh, But but let's let's take a closer look here. The IRS publishes data for the top 400 taxpayers in the United States, and they've been doing this for a couple of decades. Most of the income in that that very top elite group of 400 earners, I imagine Bill Gates is in there as well as Mr. Buffett, most of the income is capital gains income. And the, the IRS actually tra- traces who's in that top 400 group uh, every year over the last uh, couple decades. And they found that 73% of those people only were in the top 400 once during the last two decades. That means these people are the, in the very top uh, very top group, excuse me, uh, are very dynamic. There's different people every year. And so what is going on is this, is that there's a lot of small and medium-sized uh, business owners in this top group who spend their whole lives building up their business. Then they have a one-time sale of their business. When they retire, they get a big capital gain. They spike to the top of the income spectrum. Uh, but, that's, but people like Mr. Buffett, who are consistently in that very top group, uh, it, it's an anomaly. That top group is very dynamic. So President Obama, they sort of ignore, ignore the, the dynamism in that top group, and they also ignore the basic reasons why we have a lower capital gains and dividend tax rate ta- tax rate uh, the capital gains and dividend tax rate federally is fifteen percent as you know. Every industrial country has special provisions that reduce their capital gains and dividend tax rate, and there are multiple reasons for this. One is, is that corporate equity is double taxed. Capital gains and dividends have generally already faced taxation at the corporate level. So as every other country has figured out, you need a lower rate on capital gains and dividends at the individual a level to make up for that double taxation. So, for example, Ernst & Young uh, did a survey I noticed a couple weeks ago in a new study uh, of capital gains tax rates in the 34 OECD countries. The average capital gains tax rate in the OECD is 18%. Uh, In the United States, we've got a 15% federal rate and an average state rate of about 4%, so putting us at 19%. Again, the international average is about 18. So we're not doing anything exceptional with our lower 15% capital gains tax rate. That's what just what every other country does. Similarly, on the dividend side, uh, even our dividend tax rate of 15%, if you add it to the corporate uh, 35% federal rate, uh, our total burden on dividends is actually one of the highest in the OECD. Uh, President Obama would raise our 15% dividend tax rate back up to 40% where it was uh, before the Bush tax cuts a decade ago. That would be really unfortunate, uh, because what it would do is it would add back a big distortion in the tax code, which is that debt is favored over equity uh, in the tax code. Uh, And the reason is because interest is deductible at the corporate level, dividends are not. By hiking uh, the dividend tax rate back up to 40%, we will be encouraging U.S. corporations to become over leveraged, to favor debt over equity, which again is bad for the economy in general. So I'm really disappointed that, um, uh, that the Obama administration would reverse some of these important uh, tax reductions that took place uh, uh, over the last decade, and I think they would add distortions to the economy, uh, not fix anything. So let me jump over to corporations. Uh, to the Obama administration's credit and introduce a new corporate uh, uh, tax reform plan, last week it would cut the top, uh, it would cut the federal corporate tax rate from 35 down to 28%. Uh, state taxes are, corporate taxes are about 5%, so the U.S. corporate rate would be about 33%, 28% federal, 5% uh, state, state level tax. Uh, The average corporate rate in the OECD now is just 25%. The average rate in the European Union, just 23%. So we would still be far above uh, most other industrial countries on our corporate rate. But nonetheless, um, uh, kudos to the administration for uh, realizing that the high corporate rate is a problem. But other than the rate cut, most of the rest of Obama's corporate tax uh, proposals, uh, in my view, they're they're incoherent, they're self-contradictory, they don't make any economic sense. The best example of this is probably on loopholes. President Obama rails against corporate tax loopholes, uh, but his own budget uh, adds many new business loopholes for green cars, green buildings, manufacturing, advanced manufacturing, growth zones. He has a new 10% wage credit for business, uh, and on and on and on. All these new loopholes that President Obama would add would add distortion and complexity to the tax code, even though he says he wants to simplify it. One of the other ironies is that many of the loopholes that President Obama goes after, in my view, they aren't real loopholes. And I'll give you two sort of examples, uh, examples in two areas: He goes after multinational corporations and he goes after conventional energy, oil, and gas companies. So on multinational corporations, the main thrust of Obama's proposals is to penalize the foreign operations of US multinational companies, companies like General Electric, Ford. Intel Corporation. Uh, These US headquartered companies have operations all around the world. President Obama's thrust is to penalize their foreign operations. The Obama administration uh, is working from a standpoint that these foreign operations of U.S. companies are bad for the economy. Uh, The reverse is true. Uh, There's been lots of research on this. And and the reality is is that the subsidiaries of U.S. multinational companies uh, generally complement domestic production. So in General Electric, to make up a, a hypothetical, uh... opens a new subsidiary in say brazil the main purpose of that brazilian subsidiary uh, is to serve the brazilian market Uh, It generally complements, it would complement GE's domestic production. It would, uh, the foreign subsidiaries suck exports out of the United States. So generally, the more international U.S. corporations are, the more it allows them to export U.S. products around the world. And that sort of understanding that foreign operations are good for the U.S. economy seems to elude this administration. Uh, The administration's proposals to penalize foreign income of companies, it goes in the opposite direction of the direction that most other advanced countries are taking with their corporate tax code. Most advanced nations, uh, Netherlands, Germany, France, Canada, have moved to what are called territorial tax systems. Uh, the Dutch government, for example, uh, would not care and would not tax the, uh, the operations uh, of a subsidiary of a Dutch company in, say, Brazil. Uh, that, that Brazilian subsidiary could earn profits, and the Dutch government uh, would, wouldn't care and wouldn't, wouldn't tax it. Uh, that territorial uh, approach of, uh, of allowing your multinationals um, to operate abroad uh, is, is competitive. It is good for the domestic uh, economy, and unfortunately... President Obama goes in the opposite direction. He has a, a, a dozen supposed loophole closers for multinationals that, in my view, would com- most of them would complexify the tax code. A few would simplify it, admittedly. Most would complexify it, and most of them would penalize the foreign operations of U.S. companies. Finally, on, on energy, uh, you know, President Obama loves to rail against the uh, loopholes that oil and gas companies supposedly get and coal companies Uh, And and indeed there is, if you look at the official lists of tax loopholes or tax expenditures that that are put out by the Treasury and the Joint Tax Committee, there is a whole list of uh, apparent uh, tax loopholes that oil, gas and coal companies receive. But you have to understand that there is a liberal bias uh, in these official uh, lists of tax expenditures. That uh, that bias is a bias against savings uh, and investment. So, if you conservative, libertarian, pro-market economists uh, uh, like a model of a consumption-based tax system, uh, liberals have a different uh, model of a of the optimal tax system, which is a broad-based income tax system. Most of the loopholes for oil, gas, and coal companies uh, disappear if you consider the baseline or model to be a consumption-based system. So, many of the loopholes listed for oil and gas companies. Uh, are provisions that allow these companies to simply expense uh, their costs rather than depreciate and amortize them over time. In my view, then, these are not actual real loopholes. They actually are simplifying pro-investment provisions uh, that uh, every company would be allowed to do if we had a consumption-based tax system. So... uh, If you go back a few years and if you're interested in that topic, um, the the Bush administration, to its credit one year, had a detailed discussion of all the the tax loopholes in these official lists and what what tax loopholes are not real tax loopholes if we had a consumption-based system. Anyway, one of the ironies here is is that, so in my view, many of these uh, conventional Uh, Energy industry loopholes that President Obama wants to close aren't real loopholes, but at the same time, he he does add a whole bunch of real loopholes for renewable energy company, windmills and solar power and green cars and green buildings and and, and this kind of stuff. So I think the administration is very confused in its uh, understanding of uh, what a real loophole is. I'm going to wrap up there. Uh, I'll wrap up with a, a quote. President Obama's budget says, quote, the tax code has become increasingly complicated and unfair. I wholeheartedly agree with that, but unfortunately I don't think uh, the president's proposals would make it any better. Indeed, they generally
1: make the problem worse. I'm going to end there, and uh, I guess we can go to questions.